Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, August 31st. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. After nearly two decades and trillions of dollars spent in an effort to prop up the government and army there, the war in Afghanistan is officially over. A lone U.S. military transport taking to the skies over Kabul, the Taliban celebrating on the streets. In the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, hundreds of thousands remain without power in Louisiana. State officials warning the death toll will surely rise, but a sense of relief. The levees around New Orleans holding back a monster storm surge caused by the Category 4 storm. And in Florida, with the Delta variant surging and infections in children rising, a growing backlash against the governor's anti-mask efforts in schools as the Department of Education steps in to investigate similar efforts in a number of other Republican-led states. The latest on that effort today on U News. For the first time in nearly 20 years, the United States is no longer at war. A final C-17 military transport lifting off from Hamid Karzai Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan, marking the end to America's longest conflict. All U.S. troops now officially out of the country, but despite this monumental and unprecedented evacuation of U.S. citizens and Afghan allies, some people were left behind. Shortly after that last plane took off, Taliban leaders could be seen declaring victory from the tarmac of the airport in Kabul. The Taliban pledging to govern more moderately this time around. However, the future remains uncertain and very dangerous for the roughly 38 million Afghans who remain behind. This is the last soldier out of Afghanistan. In this image, released overnight, Major General Chris Donahue, who was leading the evacuation mission at Kabul Airport, seen boarding the last military flight out of Kabul, nearly 20 years after he was first deployed to Afghanistan in 2001. The last C-17 lifted off from Hamad Karzai International Airport on August 30th this afternoon at 3.29 p.m. East Coast time. Those final flights departing Kabul, transporting all U.S. military forces and all U.S. diplomats, marking the end of America's longest war. It was not a cheap mission. The cost was 2,461 U.S. service members and civilians killed and more than 20,000 who were injured. Sadly, that includes 13 U.S. service members who were killed last week by an ISIS-K suicide bomber. Secretary of State Tony Blinken acknowledging that Afghanistan is now in the hands of the Taliban. If we can work with a new Afghan government in a way that helps secure those interests, we will do it. Over 120,000 people evacuated in 17 days. Over 120,000 people evacuated in 17 days, but U.S. officials estimate between 100 and 200 U.S. citizens who want to leave remain in Afghanistan. We did not get everybody out that we wanted to get out. However, just under two weeks ago, President Biden sat down with ABC News' George Stephanopoulos, saying he would not leave any American citizen behind. No, Americans should understand that we're going to try to get it done before August 31st. But if we don't, the if, troops will if stay. If we don't, we'll determine at the time who's left. And? And if, there are American force, if there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. U.S. Central Command also noting that they were not able to get all the military hardware out of Kabul airport, but the military did render it non-operational. 
uh, we made sure to uh, demilitarize, to make unusable all the gear that, uh, that is at the airport, all the, all the aircraft, all the ground vehicles. The United States also leaving behind billions of dollars of active and operational military hardware abandoned by Afghan forces, including 600,000 arms and tens of thousands of rockets. The United Nations Security Council has now approved a resolution for creating safe passage for people still seeking to leave Afghanistan from the Kabul airport. Everybody must be allowed to safely leave Afghanistan for whatever reason, whenever they want, by air or by land. Ambassador John Bass, the former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, will lead the ongoing effort to continue to get Americans and Afghans out of the country, but officials warn it will not be an easy task. And joining us now is Laura Neek. She's a professor at the Political Science Department at Miami University in Ohio. Welcome back to you, News, Laura. Thank you, Andrea. The last troops are out of Afghanistan, ending America's longest running war. What are some of the challenges that lie ahead for President Joe Biden right now? Well, there's always the counterterrorism um, threat uh, uh, operations that the United States is engaged in, and those are vast. We're engaged in uh, maybe 40 countries right now. We have a presence in some 80 countries to deal with uh, terrorism, uh, and, and, and we'll continue that. I think also the president needs to continue to do what he's done, and that is to say to the American people, I said this is what we would do. Here are the risks. This is what we've done. Uh, you should be very proud of the people who, who did this massive airlift, as you've just reported. Um, and so, and now it's time to focus on more direct U.S. national interests. The U.S. now has to define its relationship with the Taliban. Can that group be recognized as a legitimate government by the U.S. and the international community? Well, we've already been doing that since we've been working with them. Um, when the, the Ghani government collapsed, when Ghani fled, the reports are that Bardar, the de facto head of the Taliban, contacted the U.S. Uh, diplomats and military personnel in Doha and said, Kabul is left, is going to be chaotic. We need to do something. There are two choices. The U.S. military takes control or the Taliban takes control. But we have a, a, a vacuum right now. And, of course, we weren't going to put in a, a big occupying force. And so the Taliban took over. So the U.S. was already negotiating. In fact, the U.S. negotiated a peace agreement with the Taliban last year under the, the previous administration. So we're already engaging with them as if they are the effective government of Afghanistan. Now, Biden is facing criticism at home and abroad for his handling of this withdrawal, particularly the suicide attack that left almost 200 Afghans dead, along with 13 U.S. service members. In the long run, with history in mind, do you think he will be remembered for ending the war or for this chaotic handling of how it all came to an end? I think he'll be remembered for ending the war uh, at a time where we have so many different and severe national crises under underway. The Gulf states now need to be uh, need vast help in recovering from Ida, COVID. Uh, we have <laughs> we have uh, domestic terrorism threats, so we have plenty of things that we really do need to focus on. And so I think he'll be remembered as the president who was honest with the American public and said we need to leave, and here's how we'll leave. 
Now, going back to 2001, what was the initial plan for going into Afghanistan beyond the counterterrorism side of this conflict? Was nation building ever really attainable there? Well, you asked two important and good questions. Uh, first, the initial move into Afghanistan was just about 9-11, about going after Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, denying them an operational uh, platform to hurt us again. And, and at that time, near the end of 2001, we go in October, in November 2001, the Taliban were on the run and defeated, and they were negotiating a surrender with the person who seemed to be the rising president, Karzai, he still is on the scene, and with the U.S. saying, we'd like, to, we'd like to negotiate, we'd like to be part of whatever happens next. And the U.S. said, no, we want total surrender, we want to crush you. So there was a lot of hubris there. But we had no plan for the next day. So if we keep going after the Taliban, then what? And the United States never came up with a clear mission. And so we couldn't complete a mission after the initial successful stage. Now, the president will address the nation this afternoon. Any insights into what he will say, how he will frame this historic moment? I think he'll give us a historical perspective on it, the, the losses, that card that he keeps in his, in his wallet that tells him how many U.S. persons have died uh, as a result of wars abroad, especially in Afghanistan. He has long been opposed to it. I think he'll remind us of his promise to, to get us out of Afghanistan and to get evacuate Americans and Afghans. And I know that in that news clip you just ran, it showed that the president said we would stay until we got Americans out. And right now we have one to 200 from the news reports. The diplomatic efforts are aimed at getting those people still out of Afghanistan. And if the Taliban wishes to move forward in a new phase and get its assets unfrozen and all of that, then they're going to let foreign nationals leave Afghanistan and Afghan nationals who serve the U.S. to leave Afghanistan. We'll be watching his speech very closely. Thanks so much, Professor Laura Neek of Miami University in Ohio. Thank you again. In other news, more than one million Louisiana residents remain without power and the death toll from monster Hurricane Ida is rising. The storm, now a tropical depression, but the danger is not over for those in Ida's path. Rafael Rodriguez has more on the aftermath of the disaster. Downed trees. The whole thing just snapped and fell. Widespread power outages. Like living in a camp. Neighborhoods leveled. My word is total devastation back right here. Hurricane Ida leaving a trail of destruction across the Gulf Coast. Officials warning residents in the area's worst hit to stay away. If you evacuated Terrebonne or Lafouche Parish, to stay where you are. Don't try to come home. Crews conducting hundreds of rescues to bring trapped Louisiana residents to safety. We rescued 348 people, 48 pets, and we were able to get those folks to safety. But as Ida continues to weaken, now just a tropical depression, the danger continues. In Mississippi, heavy rainfall washing away a highway Monday night, leaving at least two people dead and several critically injured. And in Tennessee, residents still recovering from recent deadly flooding, now bracing for more. God, not again. Desperate Louisiana residents left without power, lining up at gas stations for fuel, with warnings of excessive heat now in the forecast. Very desperate. Why? It's just no, no resources. Stay strong. 
we'll make it. But there is hope of recovery. This is our city, but we'll, we'll bounce back. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. All the while, the levees, flood walls, and floodgates that protect New Orleans held up against the ferocious winds of Hurricane Ida. Those barriers passing their toughest test since the federal government spent billions of dollars to upgrade the region's flood protection after Hurricane Katrina. But still, the community of Laplace near New Orleans experienced some flooding despite costly upgrades to the city's flood protection system. And joining us now to discuss how these fortifications held up against Hurricane Ida is Craig Colton. He's a geography professor at Louisiana State University, and he joins us by phone. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Professor Colton. We know the circumstances are difficult for you right now and for so many other people. Well, thank you for your interest in what's going on here in Louisiana. Of course, our, our thoughts and prior, prayers go out there. Now, I understand you have power, but no Internet. What are conditions like right now in Baton Rouge, where you're located, and what was your experience like during that ferocious storm? We were anticipating much worse conditions. We kept saying, when the power goes out, what will happen? I'm in Baton Rouge, 80 miles upriver from New Orleans Northwest. Uh, we had some pretty terrific winds howling most of the evening, uh, Saturday night into Sunday morning, uh, some pretty intermittent rainfall, uh, but we never lost power at our house. We don't, we don't have internet service, so I have to come down the block here to talk on the, to, to get some cell service. But uh, we are remarkably uh, in good conditions in my neighborhood, although probably half of the residents in Baton Rouge are without power. It's beginning to, to uh, be restored some... Uh, Grocery stores and, and other merchants have generators, uh, but traffic lights are out over much of the city, it's, it's, and trees are down, roads are blocked. Uh, there is a considerable amount of damage here, but nothing like um, places like St. John the Baptist Parish. Yes, we are seeing some aerial footage right now on our screens that shows just the way that many homes and buildings were destroyed, homes completely submerged underwater. Now, the major question in the days leading up to the hurricane were, would the levees built after the chaos and tragedy of Hurricane Katrina hold? Now, as we get a closer look at this aftermath of Ida, it does in fact appear that for the most part they did. What exactly have you observed? Because there's a lot of water out there still backed up. Yeah, well, this storm uh, had a very different wind path than Katrina, and it didn't pose nearly the risk, at least to the levees along the city's lakefront. Lake Pontchartrain sits on the north edge of the city, and it's basically a bay. Gulf of Mexico water can be blown in. But that, that water in the lake was pushed back against the levees in, 19, in 2005 during Katrina. There was also uh, a pathway between... A, a, a pair of levees that pinched together as they approached the city, that, that levee system was overwhelmed and overtopped, and a major improvement was installed that, that would have been quite effective if, if it had really been tested. This storm didn't test the levees in a way comparable to Katrina, though. They did hold up. Um, the levees exceeded the risk presented by this storm. Well, some slightly good news there. Now, what about the next major storm, a Category 4 or 5 hurricane? Will New Orleans remain adequately protected, especially in light of stronger, faster storms, as we have been observing over the last decade or so? We're still in the middle of hurricane season. Yeah, we've we still got a bit of it ahead of us. Um, 
every levy has a design limit. They're designed to prevent a certain scale of storm surge. Um, the levy systems in New Orleans weren't really uh, improved to protect against a storm of this magnitude if the winds had been blowing uh, in, a, in a more treacherous direction. Uh, so we could see uh, future storms overtop the levees. They, they could over they could exceed the design limits of the levees. And the other issue in New Orleans is the city is surrounded by levees, which creates a bowl. All rain that falls into the city has to be pumped out of the city. So if the, if the, if the pumps are overwhelmed, we could still have catastrophic flooding, not necessarily the same as we saw with Katrina, which is when levees actually broke, the levees failed. And that caused even much worse damage. We could still see severe flooding uh, with heavy rainfall in New Orleans. We will never forget what happens out there. Well, thank you so much for your time, for taking the time to speak to us today, Professor Craig Colton of Louisiana State University. We hope you and your family stay safe and hopefully all the people out there get the help that they desperately need right now. Thank you for telling our story. Another major story we're tracking, there's an alarming increase in the number of pediatric COVID cases nationwide. Nearly 204,000 new cases were reported last week among children, and that's a 427% increase from just a month earlier. This coming as kids head back to school and the Department of Education investigates anti-mask mandates in a number of states. Grecia Lastra explains. This week is back to school in Chicago after nearly 18 months away from the classroom and as more children across the country head back to school rooms, the fight over face coverings in the classroom is getting more intense. On Monday, the Department of Education took it upon a new level, launching a civil rights investigation into five states where Republican governors have made it against the law for school districts to require their students to wear masks. The government is accusing Iowa, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Utah of discriminating against students with compromised immune systems and other issues that would make those students more vulnerable to catching the coronavirus. For now, the feds say that they are ignoring the states like Florida, Texas, Arkansas, and Arizona, where they have similar laws, but they're tied up in courts. We know the spread of COVID happens when masks are not being used. We need to get those students back in because many times those are the students that really require the most support. Last week, there were nearly 204,000 new cases reported of sick children, the second highest week on record. What we know is that the risk of COVID is far greater than any concerns that parents should have about masking. Masking is a simple weapon that we have to making sure that we have a school year that is successful for all our kids. That simple weapon is dividing school systems and their parents who are screaming and yelling at school board meetings across the country and staging protests outside school offices. At this school board meeting in Florida, where they just recently required students to wear masks, it got physical. All of this on live television. There's a post for the former Secretary of Education that's getting a good deal of both praise and criticism this morning. Arne Duncan worked under President Obama and compared people fighting face coverings to suicide bombers at the airport in Afghanistan, saying that they both blow themselves up, inflict harm on those around them, and are convinced that they are fighting for freedom. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for You News.
On Capitol Hill, the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is set to issue a records request to telecom companies. The committee plans to ask those companies to preserve phone records of GOP lawmakers who participated in the Stop the Steal rally. That rally served as a prelude to the insurrection. The committee also wants companies to preserve the phone records of former President Trump and members of his family. The committee decided not to publicly reveal the names of the lawmakers whose records they are targeting. However, some of the names reportedly on the list include several of Trump's most loyal supporters in Congress. Meanwhile, in New York, that state's eviction moratorium is set to expire today. The countdown has distressed many families, but as Eileen Carde tells us, thousands still have time to apply for state assistance to avoid the potential loss of their home. Elsa Samaniego says that owing thousands of dollars in rent caused her so much anguish that she was afraid to apply for rent relief. How do I make that application? I couldn't. I was afraid of the landlord. If I told him, maybe he would kick me out. That's what I was afraid of. With support from her landlord, she overcame her fear and submitted the application. I have tears of joy. If I didn't pay rent, how would I be out of a house? For having initiated the process, she is protected just hours before the moratorium on evictions expires in New York. There are thousands of people who have not yet applied and are without protection. According to the State Assistance Office, 176,000 tenants are protected. That is among the more than one million that could be eligible. The application has had many problems. It is not easy to navigate. The challenge is to speed up the distribution of funds across the country. Goldman Sachs Bank anticipates that 750,000 households could be evicted this year. Aileen Cardet, UNUS. The New York legislature will reconvene for an unusual special session on Wednesday to try to enact a new moratorium, which, if passed, is expected to run through January 15th of 2022. Mexico's President Andrés Manuel López Obrador has said that his country would welcome migrants with open arms. But this past weekend, agents of the Mexican federal government, including National Guard troops, attacked and beat hundreds of migrants from Central America, Haiti and other countries. Jorge Hernández has more on that violence and reactions from the new caravan that continues to make its way north. Migrants confronted the police in Mexico on Tuesday after immigration agents and the Mexican National Guard tried to violently stop them over the weekend. They were traveling in a caravan crossing the Mexican state of Chiapas, heading north. Giovanni Santos walked with his daughter in his arms from El Salvador. Trying hard to see if they can let us through. Some even managed to get several vehicles to take them for a stretch. Let's go ahead as long as we go in order. Let's keep order. The migrants themselves, we have to take care of each other. But after this video went viral, in which an immigration agent is seen kicking a migrant in the head after being knocked down by the guards, the Andres Manuel López Obrador administration was harshly criticized. Sí, vamos a seguir 
Yes, we're going to continue to contain, but we have to look for fundamental solutions. Because with or without massive detention, the agent's mission is clear. Here, a few yards behind us, there is a migration truck. They're called kennels. They're waiting for families to be delayed in order to detain them. In a statement, the National Migration Institute acknowledged that these agents acted inappropriately and have been removed from their duties. Darino Tirvron was among those who defended themselves from the agent with his daughter in his arms. Then I get up. I follow the path again because if I stay on the ground, I don't know what's going to happen later. Reported in Mexico City by Jessica Cermeño, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. And now to Venezuela, where a violinist who survived COVID-19 is giving his music and support to other patients who are fighting the disease. It's a musical therapy that, as Azul Alvarez tells us, could help make a difference. An angel of music walks the corridor of Venezuelan hospitals. Melodies played on his violin, Ernesto Molina wears his biosecurity suit to distribute doses of his healing melodies to patients who are fighting COVID-19. Some even seem to come back to life when listening to his songs. This violinist takes his music there, to those places where doctors and patients are daily battling life and death against the coronavirus in the most difficult fronts the intensive care units. The bottle is in the mind. That is where all fears come from. The fear of death, the fear of loneliness, the depression that strikes so much. A music that sometimes manages to interrupt the fear of the sick, the anguish that many feel before the uncertainty that plants the COVID-19, strengthening hearts and spirits, a musical work that he has been doing for months. His father, also a musician and singer, had been the last person of the family to be infected with COVID-19 and the only one to die. I called my wife because I felt that I was going to die because I felt that my body could not take it anymore. I gave up. And now he plays in gratitude and to be an instrument of God, as he says, to comfort and bless the sick. Therapeutic effects that every doctor in that hospital are noticing. Reported in Venezuela by Francisco Restieta, this is Azul Alvarez, U News. What a wonderful act of kindness. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.